The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, Havana Nights at the Springfield Symphony and an exploration of punctuation with the serial comma, a.k.a. the Harvard comma, a.k.a. the Oxford comma with our word nerd. But first... Cornelius, age eight. A discovery brings strangers together. Seeing those names, it humanized it for me. Every time I say I'm the fifth generation of Zeke Quarterman, an enslaved man, part of me dies. On a journey across the years. Fuel article number 15, 40 acres, a mule, and $200. Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. The enslaved got nothing. Congress passes the Homestead Act, Social Security, the GI Bill, the FHA. Now, when we come to Washington, we're coming to get our check. Mama, I love you. I can't breathe. Connected by a common cause. Harm happens locally, so repair has to happen locally. Do the work. Look at your own history. What was your family's role? Seeking justice and peace. The Cost of Inheritance, a special edition of America Reframed. The Cost of Inheritance is a film by Yoruba Rishan about the U.S. reparations debate, and NEPM presents a special screening and discussion of the film this coming Tuesday, February 13th at 5.30 p.m. in Springfield College's Appleton Auditorium at the Fuller Arts Center. It's a night of storytelling and dialogue and an opportunity to learn more about the reparative justice work happening here in Western Mass. Following the screening, there'll be a panel discussion with two of the film's subjects, Brianna Cuffey and Lottie Liebdula, and local experts, Dr. Halicia Jolly and Dr. Stephen M. Bradley, Black Studies professors at Amherst College, as well as Michelle Miller, chair of Amherst African Heritage Reparation Assembly. And joining us today to talk about the screening and discussion is Dr. Stephen Bradley of Amherst College and Michelle Miller from Amherst Reparation Assembly. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, this was a hard watch. It's a good documentary, but it was heavy, yeah. which is, I mean, that feels like the, the general uh, feeling behind reparations as a whole. And am I misthinking that the panel discussion after the movie is shown is going to speak more to how reparations look in the area? Michelle, well, as oh, go ahead. Dr. Stephanie oh, Riley. I'm sorry. No, no, go oh, ahead. Oh, thank you. Oh, as I understand it, it's to, um, there will be a more general discussion mm -hmm. uh, as well as a discussion about the specifics of the work uh, that Michelle and, and several others have been making over these uh, past few years. And so uh, there'll be enough for everybody to bite into with regard to, to reparations. Have you both had a chance to see the documentary? Yes, I have. I've seen it twice. <laughs> what about you, Dr. Bradley? I have as well. Yes. It's it's really powerful. And uh, maybe to look at more of the historical aspect of reparations, uh, we would go to you, uh, Professor Bradley, because it does talk about how many times in the course of history since the end of slavery, this has come to the fore with um, Callie House to Marcus Garvey mm -hmm. to Malcolm X to John Conyers. But if a lot of those names people might have heard of, but I was really I uh, 
uh, impressed, and I hadn't heard the story of Callie House, which is talked about in this documentary. Do you want to share a little bit about her story and her work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so uh, you saw where Professor Barry uh, in the documentary, uh, she's more of an expert about Callie House, but uh, this is during a period where in, in, in enslavement um, uh, had barely ended or is about to end, uh, recognizing the idea that something had to be owed to black people who worked for free uh, during, uh, during those wretched years. And so uh, she appealed to the, uh, the U.S. government uh, um, for rep- recompense uh, for the work that was done. And this was so outrageous to a lot of different people uh, on its face uh, because they thought black people should be happy that they had freedom uh, without even recognizing the idea that they had nothing but freedom. And then they, they thought it was outrageous that a woman would be stepping out uh, uh, and talking about politics, talking about policy, uh, which is something that wasn't quite normal at the, during the period. Why do you think it is that the economic equity that would come with reparations is so subsumed under the social equity that is sought for racial justice? Mm, how do you mean? How do you mean? Uh, so it like, it, and I'm thinking about this in particular because we were talking about this yesterday with an organization that specifically is looking at um, the disenfranchised communities of color and how to make them more economically resilient. Mm-hmm. There is an ongoing struggle economically with this fight that often gets overlooked when we're looking at social justice. And I'm not entire. I think that's a large part of the call for reparations that the economic justice should come hand in hand with the social justice, but it isn't often looked at. And I'm curious as to why is it is it just the money? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> just the money. Uh, money plays a large role, but I think when we talk about reparations, it it quickly becomes an emotional issue for a lot of people. Uh, the idea that that uh, my ancestors uh, are, well, I wasn't alive when, you know, when slavery existed and, and you know, uh, white people say, uh, you know, I didn't own any slaves personally. Uh, so, so people take offense to the idea. Um, and so socially it becomes an issue of uh, who's to take blame for the issue of slavery and Jim Crow. Um, but then I think there's something more, more substantive to the argument, and that is uh, this racial wealth gap that exists in the United States, and that's that's undeniable. So, economists, uh, if they're being fair, uh, when they speak to this very subject, talk about the fact that it's it's the gap that exists between black and white uh, wealth holders uh, is so is so wide that that there's there's hardly any way to fill that gap without the uh, influx of, of, of a certain kind of revenue. Uh, and that's where reparations comes in. The reason why the gap is so wide uh, is the uh, inability of, of, uh, of you know, newly uh, freed black workers uh, and black workers during, um, during Jim Crow uh, to purchase homes that, that, that uh, advanced in in their their value uh to uh, to to put their wealth uh put their 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 money in banks and and watch it grow there to participate in the 
in the stock market in a lot of different ways. And so, so all of these things deny wealth. And now we're seeing the manifestations of those denials. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Bradley from Amherst College and Michelle Miller from Amherst Reparation Assembly about the documentary, The Cost of Inheritance. NEPM will be hosting a screening of this documentary next week. I challenge anybody to watch this documentary and not say it doesn't present a, a compelling argument for why reparations need to happen. And it happens in the documentary on a small person-to-person scale while these larger conversations are happening municipality-wide, statewide, and maybe even eventually federally. You, Michelle, in Amherst are part of Amherst Reparation Assembly. What's the latest going on municipally in Amherst towards reparations? Well, Monty, we uh, submitted our final report to the town council in September. And uh, at this at this point, with the turning over to a new council, we're waiting for a successor body to be formed. Um, that successor body, we hope, will take the recommendations that we made and begin to implement them. So the town has committed to $2 million in reparations funding. And the report that we published outlines a variety of recommendations um, ways to use that funding. And this was based on a consultative process that we went through with the community here, um, both the black community and, and the, uh, the entire community to identify what reparations means in Amherst, which of course will be different for each community that, that decides to, to look at this. Any idea how that $2 million will be put out there? Where exactly will it go? Will it go to individuals? Will it go to programs, organizations? That's a great question. Uh, we identified three funding areas. We identified youth programming, affordable housing, and business grants um, as our funding priorities based on the conversations that we had in the community. There will be some uh, limitations legally. I, the town, I believe, now is looking into what those limitations are and how we might make anything from a direct cash payment all the way through to um, benefits that will uh, support the entire community. If you watch this documentary, The Cost of Inheritance, it really breaks down how redlining and the GI Bill and Social mm. Security and the Catholic Church all worked mm. against uh, accumulating wealth p- post-slavery. And frankly, like how if this had been addressed in the early stages of freedom for formerly enslaved peoples, this would not be the bigger problem that it is now. Like that, that there were Japanese reparations after the internment after that World War II. That did go out. This is also all in the documentary. Meanwhile, Amherst is having this conversation as a municipality. Dr. Bradley from Amherst College, do you think that this needs to happen from the municipal level like this? Or or should we these conversations only be happening on a national or maybe on a state-by-state scale? Well, uh, first let me say how courageous uh, the people in Amherst uh, and Evanston uh, and a couple of other places are for taking up the issue of reparations. It scares the bejesus out of uh, so many people. So so I'm glad that they took it up. But, but I have the sneaking suspicion uh, and more than suspicion, I know that movements like these have to come from the ground up. And uh, there's been a lot of groundwork over the course of the last century or so uh, pushing in this direction. Amherst is, uh, is, is, uh, 
uh, in the vanguard of showing what's possible uh, at a local level. You asked, should it be uh, taken up at the federal level? I think so. Uh, and John Conyers and, and uh, so many others, Corey Bush now, so many others think uh, that it should be taken up at the federal level. But let's be clear about this. Nothing gets done at the federal level right now. Right. And so uh, it's going to take local municipalities to show people how to get this particular endeavor uh, completed. And I think uh, I think uh, it might happen at the state level. Uh, my good friend uh, Cheryl Grills uh, headed up the, the reparations uh, task force or, or commission and uh, at in the state of California. Um, and uh, they were able to, to, to put forth a report as well. Uh, and hopefully, uh, hopefully courageous uh, states will be able to take up the issue as well. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Bradley at, from Amherst College and Michelle Miller from Amherst Reparation Assembly. Um, the Amherst Reparations Assembly is not the only one in the state. There was one formed in North, there, one slash two formed in Northampton and one in Boston. Are you aware, Michelle, of any differences between the way that the ones in Boston or Northampton have been run and what they've been looking at in their communities? And has, did that influence the report that you submitted at all? And I think each community will be a little different. Um, we were a bit ahead of Northampton and Boston and we're very much eager to see what, uh, what their findings will be and what process they go through. I think each community has an opportunity to define for itself what reparations is. And so uh, we're definitely watching. We've been in contact with Northampton um, several times and hoping to link arms with other communities who are also working on this so that we can provide, uh, you know, support for one another. It is, um, you know, we're, we're sort of um, paving a path here. And I think the support of, of um, working together community by community is, is really necessary. Michelle Miller is part of Amherst Reparation Assembly. Dr. Stephen Bradley is from Amherst College. They will both be part of the panel discussion after the NEPM screening of the cost of inheritance this coming Tuesday, February 13th at Springfield College. It is a fascinating documentary. And if you are on the fence about your own role in the world of reparations, I, I urge you strongly to watch this. And Even if you're not, it's worth a watch. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for joining us. Yes, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Later in the show, bridging and building community through music with the Springfield Symphony Orchestra and their Havana Nights program. But first, we punctuate with a listener question from Anne from Montague, comma, the word nerd, Emily Brewster, comma, and the Oxford, comma. <laughs> Vampire Weekend doesn't care about them, but I sure do. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Time for another Word Nerd segment with Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, who is going to go toe-to-toe with somebody who lives just a couple towns over from where Emily Brewster lives in Montague. It's Aust- a Word Nerd Thunderdome! Yeah! Self-proclaimed member of the Montague Word Police, we got an email from Anne who uh, says that she really enjoyed the segment about apostrophes last time. It was the first she'd heard the Word Nerd segment and wanted to make some suggestions for future topics and uh, gave us a bunch of really great topics that we can tackle. You could send us some great topics to tackle too, listener. Thefab413 at nepm.org. But the one we're going to tackle that Anne suggested, the self-declared Montague Word Police, has to do with commas, specifically the Oxford comma. For those who don't know what an Oxford comma is, 
and don't know the Vampire Weekend song. What is an Oxford comma? An Oxford comma is a comma that simply precedes the and or the or near the end of a list. When you've got two or more items being listed. Why do they call it an Oxford comma? Is it the dictionary, the school, a little bit of both? It's the publishing company. Uh It is also called the Harvard comma, and it is most neutrally called the uh, serial comma, not the kind you eat, the S-E-R-I-A-L. Like Uh, killers. What? Like killers. Oh, serial killers. Yeah, right. Killer commas. But nicer. Yes. Yes. Merriam-Webster also uses the serial comma, and I personally use the serial comma to a fault. I put it in the name of Bed Bath and Beyond. Blood yes. Bath and Beyond. I mean, that's a great metal band name. Yeah, I think it was a Simpsons reference, actually. Careful there, Annie Oakley. I don't have to be careful. I got a gun. So there's debate about the usefulness of the Oxford comma, which is why some people use it and some people don't. You use it to a fault, you said, Emily Brewster. So why do you think it's important to use in your own personal correspondence? At this point, it's just, I mean, 90% of the time, it is really just habitual. And 10% of the time, it actually does lend clarity. A lot of newspapers don't because it uses up space. And again, it's really, things are only muddled without it a very small percentage of the time. So it is truly about personal choice. Now, I don't know what (laughs) Anne's particular bent is, self-proclaimed Montague word police officer. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully she doesn't pull me over as I drive through there on the way to work. Only if you're saying bad things. Yeah. And also, I'd like to say, Anne, if you're listening to this, uh, maybe being word police, maybe what you'll learn hopefully from this word nerd segment is that if by word police you're going to be judging people harshly about how they use words and things, maybe Emily Brewster will disabuse you of that notion. Maybe we're more on the side of uh, word community engagement. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Anything more about the Oxford comma that particularly titillates you, Emily Brewster? Well, it is really fun to look at some of the consequences of omitting the Oxford comma. If if people called it the Merriam-Webster comma, that would be okay with me. I personally prefer the serial comma. That's how I refer to it. Um, there is a very famous but but fictitious book dedication that goes like this. I'd like to thank my parents, comma, Ayn Rand and God. <laughs> so that you know, if, if you put the comma after Ayn Rand, then the author is thanking their parents and Ayn Rand and God, which right. is which sounds n- like a normal thing for some people to do when they're dedicating a book. But if you leave out the Oxford comma, then you're asserting that your parents are indeed Ayn Rand and God, and then you get to be Jesus's sibling. Yeah, or you know, or any member of the Republican Congress at this point, maybe Ayn Rand Paul. There's also a, um, a, a more controversial, famous example. We invited the strippers, comma, JFK and Stalin. <laughs> where, where do these come from? I love I don't this. know. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like and a, I, a lot of them were in that book, uh, Eat, Shoots and Leaves, which talk about this, too. Oh, yes. Um, although Steven Pinker may have a book that that included some of these before that book was written. Mm. I'm not sure. Steven Pinker is a linguist. Lynn Truss is a... Um, she might describe herself as a as a kind of word police person. Right? She tracks. writes more on usage as opposed to linguistics, but they've both treated it. Uh, lots of other people have too. The Oxford comma, the serial comma is um, something that people feel passionately about and they like to talk about it. I do know of a real example. I think this also was in Steven Pinker's book. This one is, is like definitely true. Among those interviewed were Merle Haggard's two ex-wives, Chris Christopherson and Robert Duvall. 
That would be so amazing. I want to watch that cowboy movie and or hear that album. Help me make it through tonight. This is business, not personal, Sonny. I mean, so it, there's a comma after exclusive. the word ex-wives, <laughs> and then you just have that phrase, Chris Christopherson and Robert Duvall. In order for this to work, the first noun you mention has to be broad and unspecific, right? It can't refer to a particular person. It can refer to a category of person. And then it has to be followed by two specific items that laughingly don't, you know, obviously don't qualify as being the reference of that broad noun. See, this is why I believe it's good that you're continuing to use the Oxford comma, Emily Brewster, and, and advocate for it because of clarity. But there are going to be times where it's not necessary. I, and I think I'm guilty of those times trying to differentiate and not using it too frequently. I just yeah. throw all the commas in because the more I have, the more I can pause and make it easier for people to get what I'm actually saying. Hmm. Since I knew we were going to talk about this, I got out one of my favorite books that I would absolutely want to recommend to people. It is called Shady Characters. It's written by Keith Houston. And the subtitle is The Secret Life of Punctuation, Symbols, and Other Typographical Marks. Oh, I love love it. It It is very, very interesting. According to Mr. Houston, the comma comes from some of the, the very, very earliest marks which apparently were made by Aristophanes when he was, you know, had to do something with that library in Alexandria. I think he was in charge of it, actually. Good so, job with that one. <laughs> well, I don't know. You ruined it for all of us. No. <laughs> Where was their sprinkler system? I know, right? Uh-huh. Um, so before Aristophanes started putting in dots at this point, there were none. There were absolutely none. Everything was run in together in all just one string of letters. And not only does it run in, but Boustrophodon writing. Whoa. That's my favorite <gasps> yeah, dinosaur. Right? B-O-U-S-T-R-O-P-H-E-D-O-N. Boustrophodon wow. writing places the letters of the words like you're plowing a field. So you go left to right, and then you turn to the next line, and you go right to left. Oh. And then on the next line, you go left to right, and then right to left. Interesting. And at this time, what is understood is that is that writing was something that was almost always done out loud. This was, people were not reading quietly to themselves. They were just reading aloud. And Aristophanes started putting in three different kinds of dot. One would be a high dot, a middle dot, and a low dot. And the middle dot was what eventually became the comma. And it was called the comma because he placed it after a rhetorical device that was called the comma. So it wasn't actually, it was really about what the thing marked as opposed to what the thing was. But that is where we got our word comma. What was the rhetorical device comma like? What what was, how was it used? I don't know that. Ah. Mr. Houston has failed me on this account. It's, well, it signaled a pause, signaled a, a middle pause, you know, which is very similar to what it does now, right? We mm-hmm. have a, a period signals a longer pause and a comma signals a shorter pause. And a coma could be an indeterminate amount of pause. <laughs> Yeah. His website is really fun, by the way. I'm looking at it right now. Oh, oh are you? Yeah it's, yeah, it's really, it's a really fun book. I did not know um, that the number symbol was called an octothorpe. Oh, yes. Amazing. Yes. That's so cool. The pound yeah, but sign nobody number knows why. Symbol. Yeah, the pound sign is called an octothorpe. Now the hashtag, which is even worse than the, the pound yeah, sign. I know, that's way bad. That's not nearly as... We're going to have to revive it. Hashtag octothorpe. <laughs> I want to start a movement. Hashtag octothorpe. <laughs> that doesn't have, just make it redundant. <laughs> yes, and that's what I love about it. Oh, no. The book, again, is Shady Characters by Keith Houston. But if you head over to shadycharacters.co.uk, you can see what we're talking about. Oh, fun. 
do either of you have feelings about the comma splice? Oh. No, because I don't know what it is. In some corners, it's a crime. I am guilty of using it also too much, but that's all. That's usually because my sentences run very long. What is a comma splice? <laughs> a comma splice is simply where you use a comma where a period is really strictly prescribed. Oh, yeah. The comma would be fine if you put an and in there, for example. I love punctuation. It's super fun. But um, if I just put a comma, I love punctuation, comma, it's super fun. That would be a comma splice. But if I put I love punctuation, comma, and it is super fun or because, then you wouldn't need the comma at all. It's really just putting a comma where a period is strictly required. Guilty. Yeah. Yeah. I try to be better about it, though. I try to write short sentences. In informal writing, I really love comma splices. I feel like they're a way of keeping the momentum going. And Mm -hmm. I do find myself, I don't know, do either of you use punctuation less in texting than you ever did in email? No. That is a trend that has been noted. I certainly am, like, I've been pushed along with it also. Yeah, my children don't like when you put a period in your text because then it supposedly means that you're, like, kind of angry. That doesn't, that's not... No. <laughs> Language changes. Don't be a word I, cop. I, it's not. I'm not being a word cop. It's more of a, there is this interesting discussion happening on TikTok that my sister is definitely a part of. And now I have been drawn into about the clarity that especially high functioning people try to use in order to make what they mean come across as specifically as possible, which is part of why I use punctuation in texts. Right. Being as clear as possible, I think, yeah. is, is beneficial. Even when I voice to text, I'm always like, Khalees, comma, or I have to say Kaylee Ice to my phone. <laughs> Kaylee Ice, comma. <laughs> my phone has finally started recognizing my name as my name. Uh, but you always have to say the punctuation. That's the part that feels weird yeah. <laughs> when Period. you're doing voice to text. When you say period at the end of the sentence. comma, da-da-da-da-da, comma, da-da, open parentheses, and I haven't gotten it to be able to do that yet. I have to go back and put that in. Yeah. What do you do, Emily Brewster? Do you you still use good punctuation in your uh, text messages? When I do voice to text, I do sometimes, like I do that thing saying comma and period and all that. But in general, my practices for texting have changed a lot over the years, and I use much less punctuation than I used to. And I will sometimes even use emoji in places where in the past I might have used a punctuation mark. I said LOL in a text for the first time ever last week, and I felt like a failure. You used LOL for the first yeah, time Yeah, I, I hate LOL, but I don't know why I did it. I yeah. use ha-ha and LOL. Yeah, I use ha-ha. I use ha-ha all the time. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know. LOL can have, um, it can be a little sarcastic. Yeah, my, that's that's what I use, lol. I use lol when I'm being sarcastic. I think I, that is probably why I used it, because I wasn't really thinking what the person said was funny. I'll tell you <laughs> off the air what it was, and you'll understand why. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> it's no. so funny, though, right? We are, we are constantly encountering written language now in a way that we never, ever have before. Like, we as a species, right? Mm. There's so much written language and so much of it now is really informal very quickly produced um often not carefully thought through and we are as as humans finding ways to still communicate with one another you know at least we don't have to wait like two weeks to clarify if somebody is mad at us for putting a period in a text yeah 
I mean, for the letter to go and come back. But also, you probably had to think a little bit more about what you were writing down, so you really meant it in those two weeks. Yeah, and maybe you made a copy for yourself so you'd be able to cross-reference what you were talking about weeks ago when you wrote that letter, in case you forgot. I mean, one could hope. Yeah, there's that. Who's got that kind of paper? Like, paper was... (laughs) All the founding fathers decided they wanted to do it that way. I do think of the Hamilton musical a lot, though, because there is a part about the comma. The letter I received from you two weeks ago, I noticed a comma in the middle of a Stroke and you've consumed my waking days It says my dearest Angelica With a comma after dearest You've written my dearest Angelica Anyway, all this to say This is a really interesting grammatical musical moment here in Hamilton It's so easy to introduce ambiguity I know the line you're talking about And they could, it was a letter and she couldn't ask him to his face She just had to wonder Yeah, and wait weeks and Weeks, yeah <laughs> Uh, Yes. Well, a big thank you to Anne, the self-declared Montague Word Police. We may get to some of your other topics in future shows. And if you're somebody who's listening and have topics that you would like us to address, like commas or the Oxford comma, like Anne did, you can send them our way. The Fab 413 at NEPM.org. Or, you know, if you want to figure out what a pill crow is. What is a pill crow? It's the paragraph thing, the backwards P. <laughs> is that another thing that you just pulled from the shady characters yeah, website this, of Keith Houston? Like I said, this site is fascinating. <laughs> Thank you, Emily yep. Brewster. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And from Montague wrote again to suggest the Robert Frost line, the Robert Frost line, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, ellipses. It would have had a different sense if he had written the woods are lovely, dark and deep. If you always leave out the Oxford comma, then you lose the option of leaving it out in order to make its absence meaningful. Coming up, bringing more communities together into the symphony when we speak with Springfield Symphony Orchestra about Havana Nights happening this Saturday night. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. This Saturday, February 10th, the Springfield Symphony Orchestra Pops present Havana Nights, a history-making Springfield Symphony Orchestra concert as the first Latin-themed performance hosted by the Springfield Symphony Orchestra, featuring the Mambo Kings, an Afro-Cuban Latin jazz ensemble, and soloist Camille Zamora. It's being supported and sponsored by local Cuban-American businessman Cesar Ruiz, who I just saw earlier this week was part of Holyoke's new effort to build a volleyball complex to become the epicenter of sports in the area. I mean, I would go play volleyball for sure. Totally. Uh, And his Golden Years home care. Cesar and his networks are serving as a link for the SSO in reaching a more diverse audience and the Hispanic community. His outreach includes reaching out to public schools in Holyoke and Springfield. We are joined by Camille Zamora and the president and CEO of Springfield Symphony, Paul Lambert, as well as Heather Guerin, Springfield Symphony Orchestra Director of Development. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a joy to be here. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Last time we got to go to your house, and you got to come to our house this time. Absolutely. Yeah, we loved going to Symphony Hall, and we're excited to hear that Camille is coming back to Symphony Hall. We heard you uh, knocked everybody's socks off at the 2002 Holiday Pops. Camille, what was that experience like? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I cannot wait. It is such a joy to be in Springfield. Incredible, incredible orchestra. Just really a treasure. Just amazing playing and a lot of passion, and the hall is just a work of art, and the audiences are incredible. So I've been counting the minutes. So have we. And I'll, I will point out to you that she, there's a lot of sockless people who she did knock their socks off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
practice good foot health care, even if you're going to go to a stellar Havana Nights at the Springfield Symphony Make sure Hall. to regain your socks before you try to enter any other establishment yes. they may kick no you out. Shoes, no shoes, no, no pointed, shirt, no service here. I've pointed out to a lot of folks that uh, a patron, actually, after the concert last uh, Holiday Pops, pulled me aside and talked to me about Camille, said, oh my goodness, she was luminous. And I thought, Aww. wow, I've never, I've never been luminous in my <laughs> well, life. It would be nice to be luminous, you know, but she well, was. Yeah, exactly. You all make it easy, I'll tell you. And, and, you know, it is it is so funny. I mean, this program in particular, it is very hard for people to stay in their seats. It is <laughs> such a, a, an active, exciting program. And you, you, it's so fun for me because, I, of course, I always have the best seat in the house. I get to look into the audience all night long, and I just see people, like, fidgeting, wanting to get up and dance because the whole program is is just with these driving Spanish dance rhythms. It's amazing. Well, Paul, you're the president and CEO. Can we encourage people now to say that it's okay to dance, or, or what is that sh- frowned upon in Symphony Hall? I think the whole idea of this is people to have a wonderful time. <laughs> no, and that's the idea. I mean, I, I don't know that a lot of our patrons will jump up in the aisles and dance, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know what? If I someone feels to, to, if they, to, if they to they move feel the, a little bit, I think that'd be a wonderful thing. I think if you do a good job reaching out to the Latino communities of Springfield and Holyoke, there's a better chance that there might be some dancing in the aisles. Absolutely. (laughs) I think the beautiful thing about Symphony Hall is that once you get that energy moving in there, it's really hard to stay in your seat. What you see, once you see what can be happening in Camille's voice is just incredible. So it should uh, encourage a lot of movement on Saturday night. And as you all know, the the active, when you're live in the space where the live music happens and you have not only the Mambo Kings and Camille, but you have 60, 65 members of the Springfield Symphony Orchestra all playing on stage it's just this overwhelming energy that comes off the stage beautiful music and it's and the, the acoustics are so good in symphony hall it's really a very special experience to be there yeah so the life and breath of of live music really like getting into people when you're in those seats it's That's wonderful right. we've talked around the program can we talk specifically about this program and what makes it so special camille what are you excited about you know, this I have to say this music is just my it's my joy. It's um it's the music I grew up with, the music of my dad and and it's uh it, it's actually an incredible survey of Spanish music. We have everything from sort of, you know, 17th century zarzuela arias, a few of these sort of like basically Spanish opera, which is super grand and exciting and it has all of that sort of Olympic vocal energy of opera, but again mixed with this driving Spanish beat, which is so cool. Um, and so we have everything from that to, you know, uh, Celia Cruz, you know, uh, amazing Cuban music. We have some incredible Mexican uh, surprises. And then, of course, we have Tito Puente and Spanish Harlem. And, you know, it just runs the gamut. And I think the thing that's so fun is hearing these beautiful melodies, some of which are, are very familiar, but hearing them in that orchestral palette, it's just like this cushion of sound. And, yeah, it's a visceral experience. And there's, there's a lot of dance music built in. There's mambos, there's tangos, there's all kinds of rhythms and different music that'll be presented. So it'll be hard to stay in your seat. There's something beautiful when you take music that is often associated with pop and then give it an orchestra to interpret it. It just sure. becomes like bigger and more expansive in really cool ways that I think we're all expecting to hear this weekend. I think the intensity of it once you do that is really something special. I also think it provides an opportunity for someone who may have never experienced the symphony orchestra and may be a bit intimidated by the traditional classical sense of music to come and experience something to 
have that hands-on moment and that, oh my goodness, this is what we can do here, experience. And then it kind of opens up your palate because it is, it's it's breathtaking. It's 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 a transformational ex- experience once you're in there and, and the music just starts. It takes you to another place. I cry often, but you know, <laughs> we don't have to talk about that. Thanks. Same, Heather. You know, it's, it's the good tears, those tears of, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm witnessing this in my hometown of Springfield, Massachusetts. How lucky are we to have this here? And that is Heather Guerin, who's the Springfield Symphony Orchestra Director of Development. We're also joined by the President and CEO of the SSO, Paul Lambert, and the soloist for this Saturday night's performance, Camille Zamora, part of Havana Nights, a groundbreaking first for the Springfield Symphony Orchestra. Now, Camille, your CV is incredible, from playing at Carnegie Hall to playing (laughs) with, uh, you know, all sorts of symphony orchestras across this country, playing at the Capitol and the Kennedy Center, playing with Yo-Yo Ma. You also mentioned that this music that you'll be playing is your dad's music, the music that you grew up with. Did you grow up with it in a symphonic setting, or did you grow up with it more in like a dance hall type setting? And how oh, and I how does it that. feel transitioning between those two seemingly disparate worlds that will come together at Symphony Hall this Saturday? And what do you bring of one to the other when you're performing in one place or the other? Oh my goodness, I'm just, I'm loving these questions. So um, yeah, first of all, I mean, yeah, my, my wacky career, I feel super fortunate. I have this sort of omnivorous career. I've sung a lot of different styles and with some of the most glorious collaborators you could ever dream of. Um, and you know, the funny thing is actually my whole my whole life, I my dad was a one of seven kids and they all grew up, you know, playing guitar and singing these funny old Spanish songs. My, my sweet grandpa used to serenade my grandma and this super musical household. It was just sort of um, oxygen in, in a way on my dad's side of the family. And and I was lucky enough, I grew up in, in between Texas and Mexico City and, and in Houston where I grew up, we had really good public school music which I know uh, Springfield has amazing, some amazing public school music programs going on right now. We um, had just great choruses in, in the schools that I was going to. And then I got to high school and by the time I was there, my awesome choral teacher said, listen, you know, you really have a voice. Let's see how far you can take this. So lucky enough to go to Juilliard and, and start my opera career. But this Spanish music that I started with was always my sort of guilty pleasure. Hmm. I, you know, I'd have these wonderful Mozartian heroines that I would be singing on stage but it would be these beautiful little boleros and tangos and and traditional songs that I would warm up with in my dressing room. And, you know, it was actually uh, through sheer good fortune, my wonderful manager, Jamie Greenberg, Greenberg Artists, said, you know, let's let's talk about building some shows around this music that you really love. And we realized, wow, there's, there's such an opportunity. For one thing, the Latin Hispanic demographic in our country is this incredible, vibrant, growing demographic but a demographic that a lot of times hasn't necessarily felt the you know symphonic doors wide open to them and this is a way to bring in new audiences and um you know it's incredible to hear it on the grand orchestral size and scope to hear these traditional songs that are in the most technicolor orchestral versions and that's you know a, a big part of this whole evening, we hope, other than inviting new audiences. And it's quite intentional, as you can imagine, on our part to find ways to engage our larger, the diversity of this wonderful place that we live. You know, we've talked so often about finding ways to touch all the communities that make up our community and bring people together around this this great gift we have of having a symphony orchestra in Springfield, Massachusetts in 2024. Still kind of a miracle. But we really want people to come in and have, have some joy. The world is so 
the news is just so damn sad in, in with all respect these days. So true. I think we just so need true. people to come in and just let it go for a couple of hours yeah. and sing and dance and laugh and enjoy the music and, and feel some joy in your heart. More about Springfield Symphony Orchestra's Saturday program of Havana Nights coming up. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We continue our conversation with Paul Lambert and Heather Guerin from the Springfield Symphony Orchestra and soloist Camille Zamora, who will be featured this Saturday at Springfield Symphony Hall for Havana Nights. Symphonies that are willing to do popular music, um, it's it's not that they're rare, but they're inherently of the people, mm-hmm. not just making sure that you're doing like art music or like quote unquote classical, because we still don't have a proper name for orchestral music. <laughs> you can't just name it after one of the time periods. Great point. It's like, it's just, <laughs> Very true. It's like, it is a thing that annoyed my music major brain for years. <laughs> it's just like, really? We named the whole thing after this 110 year period? Yeah. Come hey, on. if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. No, oh. get off. <laughs> wow. You, you, had to, you had to drop that in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Everyone, oh, I, everyone I, groans. I, <laughs> you have to with that one. Um I think what you said is so accurate, and I think it's something that Paul and I and the entire team at the SSO right now feel so deeply is that we have to be incredibly open-minded and aware of this world that we live in. And it's it's not the world of five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, and that there are these amazing new artists that we can combine with these old artists and these, these different genres that can bring people together. And music is one of the only things in this world, and in my opinion, that can truly cross every barrier and can bring people together because it is you have to I feel like actually try to not feel it in your bones when you're in an experience like this and it and it it allows us to bring something to um, people of every single age too we have little kids that come to these concerts and people have been coming to these concerts for years and years and years and it allows us to educate them on on what else is out there and hopefully open their minds to expanding what we can be as an organization here and i love hybrid concerts you oh know, yeah that work with some some of the, the traditional music or folks that I, music that i love you know i've been a subscriber to the symphony orchestra for 20 years i love that music <laughs> you know and and i love i grew up my mom and dad always took us to concert and i love what when many people would call this kind of traditional classical music and that's that's great but we keep discovering and, and my ears and eyes keep being opened to so many more traditions of remarkable music going back centuries in some cases but also happening today this is a live art form mm-hmm. i never want people to think they're coming to a museum piece you know this is a living art form and and i also love to remind everybody it's fun it's exciting. Come yeah. on out and have a great time. But like the beauty of it is that it's almost time traveling, oh, yeah. like yeah. hybrid concerts like this, because you get like uh, Camille was mentioning, like you've got Spanish arias that are from, you know, like, let's say like 18th century, mm-hmm. like 19th century. But you've also got like Mambo, which is a modern like 20th century, like late late 19th like 20th century form like the ability to combine all of those histories and all of those contexts together is a thing that i is 
uniquely possible in programs like this. And it does really act as that bridge between what people think classical is and what classical yeah. can be, what yeah. orchestral music can be and do. And both the programs that we've talked to you about have really done that in a very cool way. And I'm going to stop talking and being like, I'm so happy about this program. <laughs> it's the coolest thing. Yeah, but, it is the coolest thing now. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, and, and Camille mentioned, we're, we're also, as you look at the industry, there are so many talented people. It's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. You know, not just the talent of the Springfield Symphony Orchestra members individually. It's remarkable. She mentioned Jamie Greenberg and the great arrangements, Jeff Tyzek and some of the other people working on this show. There, it's it, You can't just put the treacle out there. This, this is really wonderfully well thought through programming. Uh, it's, it's tremendously exciting to listen to. The program is Springfield Symphony Orchestra's Pops presenting Havana Nights this Saturday night at Springfield Symphony Hall featuring the Mambo Kings and soloist Camille Zamora. It's an intentional uh, way to reach out to the Latino community of the greater Springfield area. And you were mentioning, Camille, as a soloist, that this wasn't necessarily a world that you started growing up in. But now that you are, you have hit the highest upper echelons of this world of symphonic music. When you meet somebody from specifically the Latinx community, who is exposed to this big symphony style of music. What Have you seen any interesting reactions similar to yours where their worlds have expanded in some way? Oh, that's, that's such a beautiful question. You know, I, I do have to, to reference it. There was a little moment this summer, um, this, or this past summer, when I was with the Mambo Kings and we were doing this sort of the unplugged version, as I mentioned, and oh. the non-orchestral version. And, you know, it's, it's a tour. I mean, that's another fun thing. You know, we talk to the audience and, and we visit these different countries and, you know, we make our corny jokes about not having to bring your passport and all that stuff. Mm. And the wonderful thing is that you really see people's eyes light up. And again, I have that privileged position. I get to look out at the audience and see these eyes light up. And then I, there was, I'll never forget, um, we plunged into this old classic sort of chestnut. And again, these were the, the songs that my dad loved so much. And there's a song that you may know called Petfidia, which is this beautiful sort of romantic song. And I literally saw this this gentleman kind of, his, his shoulders sort of heaving. You could tell he was kind of, you know, honestly, he was sort of sobbing because this is music that is so poignant and it is kind of lost in, in, in a sense and that it's not that often performed live. Um, you know, it's, it, these are these old chestnuts. And I think for definitely for some, some older, older audience members, it, it's profoundly reminiscent of a sort of bygone era. Um, and then what I also love is folks who have never heard any Spanish or Latin music, you know, are a lot of sort of traditional symphony sub- subscribers who are used to their beautiful diet of, you know, the, the, great German masters and all of that good stuff. And they've never heard Spanish classical music. And they're like, wait, what is this? You know, it's like Giuseppe Verdi meets your favorite salsa bar. It's like, I love what, it. You know, <laughs> what is this? And people people really come alive to it. Um, you know, the, the, the origins of Spanish expression are, musically are so interesting because, of course, it, a lot of it was actually born in northern Africa in the minarets. It's the, 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 call, you know, the call to prayer and that bent second scale degree where you hear this, this wonderful sort of modal tone that traveled up through the Iberian Peninsula, fused with gypsy expression and became flamenco and flamenco forms the basis of a lot of what we consider to be sort of that spanish classical sound um so it really it's a there's a whole world tour built into this concert i can't wait it seems so exciting 
Camille Zamora is the soloist for Havana Nights, which will be guest conducted by Nick Palmer, who's a frequent uh, pops conductor with the Springfield Symphony Orchestra. And we've... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm pointing at my auntie because I have have one last question. Um, Kind of flipping that last question on its head, Camille, is there something that you've learned in these past five years working with the Mambo Kings that you've taken from the context of working with them and used in like more traditional, more classical, your more classical forms? Oh, what a great question. You know, um, definitely the, you know, it's funny that the element of give and take, you know, sort of the improv vibe, that's not su- surprising that I've sort of taken taken some of that from them. Um, but also interestingly enough, you know, what's funny is the rhythmic vigor, because one of the things about a lot of the music that I sing, soprano that I am, is that I get to hang out on the high note, <laughs> you know, to my, you know, to my heart's content, I'll hang out here, oh, okay, I'm gonna catch the maestro's eye and we'll come down to the, resolve the chord. Um, the interesting thing is actually performing with Latin jazz ensemble, not so much hanging out on the high note, you know, it's about a driving dance rhythm and you don't want the dancers to like fall over while you hang out on a certain note. So I've, I think I've learned to kind of definitely um, never lose touch with my inner sort of heartbeat metronome that, that drives the dance rhythm forward. Two forms of breath control, very different. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well said. Camille Zamora, the soloist for Havana Nights this Saturday at the Springfield Symphony Orchestra and Paul Lambert and Heather Guerin from the Springfield Symphony Orchestra. Thank you so much for sharing about this concert happening this Saturday night right here down the street from the NEPM studios. It's a joy to be with you. Thanks so much for having us. And the program looks amazing. Encantada. Come on now. Encantada. Nos vemos el sábado. Ah, see. Wear your dancing shoes. Hasta luego. Nos vemos. Please do. Nos vemos. Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we've got some ways that you can directly interact with Black History Month, including a gathering in Northampton's College Church and several lectures at STCC. We'll chat with Northampton Councilor-at-Large Garrick Perry and organizer Marsha Morris about the event Black History from Christian Abolitionism to White Fragility. And we'll talk with the Reverend Talbert Swan and Ayanna Crawford about the Lift Every Voice speaker series, along with their first speaker, producer Domingo Guyton. And our weekly chat with Congressman Jim McGovern. Got a question? for the representative, email us at thefab413 at nepm.org. We leave you with the iconic voice who you can hear on Saturday night at Springfield Symphony Hall. After thanking the fabulous 413 tech team. Yeah. Thank you, Betsy. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. We haven't Chuck, we haven't thanked Chuck in a long time. I know. Chuck. Punk Sharp Rock Cheddar Boy, Sharp Cheddar Dubay. And Bart Rankin, as well as Kara Foster. And Tony Dunn in Abstentia. Here's Camille Zamora. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.